Pentecost, the Sunday that comes 50 days after Easter, is known in England as Whit Sunday. The following day, Whit Monday, is illegal as well as a church holiday. On Whit Monday, 1865, Sabine Baring Gould, a clergyman in the Church of England, uh, planned an outing for the village children of his parish, including a hike from his own church to a nearby village. Now, knowing that children like to march and how difficult it is to keep children you know, together, unless they're, they're kind of marching together, uh, he looked for a hymn that could accomplish that purpose. I didn't find any. And so he sat down, and in less than 15 minutes, he composed this song for the children to march to, Onward Christian Soldiers. Look at the words that he wrote. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banner go. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices, loud your anthems raise. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. Onward then, ye people, join our happy throng. Blend with ours your voices in the triumph song. Glory, laud, and honor unto Christ the King. This through countless ages men and angels sing. I'm afraid this song is considered a bit too politically incorrect for our day and age. And in light of history with such things as the Inquisition and the Crusades, it it just seems a little bit too militaristic. But may I suggest respectfully to you that maybe we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater? You know, we've allowed cultural sensitivities to, to, in many cases, to gut the meaning of Scripture. And we've declared biblical truth as being inappropriate for the time in which we live. But you see, the New Testament pictures the Christian life as a battleground. We are in a spiritual war. Perhaps because we've disregarded the teaching of scriptures. And I was thinking about this week to try to come up with a good word. I don't know if I came up with a good word, but I I thought, you know, to some degree we've domesticated the Christian life. Um, Another word I made up, we've sissified the Christian life here. Maybe that's why many Christians live lives that are indistinguishable from the culture in which we live, because we don't understand that it's a battle. It's a spiritual conflict. Every day the decisions we make involve spiritual conflict. You know, people can suffer from a sort of Stockholm syndrome. You don't know what that is? Google it. Look it up. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes to his colleague in in ministry, Timothy, and he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Paul describes the Christian as being in a spiritual battle. He tells believers in Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God. He says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He, He says that we wage war against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Apostle Peter wrote in his first epistle, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exile to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It's a spiritual battle that we're in. We can't afford to be lax. We can't afford to, to just, you know, just kind of sit back on our laurels. We need to understand that every day is a battle for right and wrong, for true and false in our lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul's going to lay out a great spiritual truth about being a victor in Christ. This is, this is a truth that needs to shape your perspective if you're going to live your life as God intends you to live. So let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If you grab a Bible in front of you, page 1226. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, before he gets to the main thing that I want you to get out of this morning, he deals with a situation in the, in the Corinthian church that will derail their righteous, victorious stand in Christ if they don't deal with it. And so at the beginning of chapter 2, he explains why he's delayed in coming to them. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Paul says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction, anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant life that I have, the abundant love that I have for you. Now, What's he referring to? Here and in the following verses, there's, there's probably two primary possibilities. One is that he's talking about the opposition that he faced on a previous visit. Remember, Paul, on his second visit, this is after he'd founded the church and spent 18 months there, but on a second visit, he was opposed to his face. There was at least one person who was a leader in the church who had been swayed by the false teachers that had come in, and he opposed Paul, even accusing Paul that he wasn't a true apostle uh, and, and, and concerned about that the money that they were giving for the collection for the saints in Jerusalem because of the famine would be used to pad his own pockets. And so Paul has this confrontation there, and then he goes off, and now he hasn't heard what's happened, and so he's really worried about what's going on at this point. That's one possibility. The other possibility is something that came up earlier. Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians, and he really took them to the woodshed over a situation in their church. Turn back to 1 Corinthians, just flip back to the book before you, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul wrote this to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. That is, a man is living, sleeping with his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, 
with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Here's what's happened. The Corinthians are boasting of, uh, of their tolerance for this Christian brother who's living in open sin. And Paul comes down hard on the entire church here on this misguided, misplaced expression of acceptance. And so he says, if you won't judge him, then I will. I'll use my apostolic authority. Now, apparently, between the time then when he wrote that letter and this, if this is the thing that he's referring to, this, this brother has repented. He's turned from his sin. But now the church that once wasn't willing to discipline out of a misguided sense of tolerance isn't ready to forgive. And they're wanting to keep him out of the fellowship. The problem is the church is unwilling to forgive. They're unwilling to take this next step. But they've reversed the process now with this rigid sense of lack of forgiveness. So go back to 2 Corinthians chapter Four and let's uh, chapter two and let's look at what he writes. Second Corinthians two, starting at verse five, Paul says, "Now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you." And know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So the man has been reproved by the church. This action was sufficient. I mean, the, the church had to exercise discipline. And I think some even thought that a more severe punishment would have been in order. But Paul now emphasizes restoration. So whatever situation it is, whether it's this rebellious brother who's opposed Paul when he was there earlier, or whether it's this man back in, in Corinth that was living in sin and has been disciplined, the issue is the same. Sin was confronted. Discipline was given. Then there was repentance, and now the church has a choice. Are we going to forgive and restore the brother, or are we going to continue to hold it over his head? Never let him forget it. See, sometimes it's more difficult to forgive than it is to punish. Forgiveness, though, we need to understand, for those who err, is really a response to God's grace. And we who believe in God's grace must then follow the biblical order and be involved in forgiveness. Waldo Beach writes, the ethics of forgiveness keeps discipline from becoming a harsh justice of an eye for an eye. Just as the ethics of discipline keeps forgiveness from a soft and finally cruel indulgence. And so Paul exercises his apostolic authority here within the church declaring that what they forgive, he forgives. Because he's not concerned just with justice, he's also concerned about mercy. Dr. French Arrington says, discipline has ceased to be Christian where it is so severe 
as to leave no place for reconciliation and a return to the warmth and security of Christian fellowship. I find it very interesting that Paul identifies a spirit of a lack of forgiveness with a scheme of the devil. Isn't that interesting? There are several things, if you study through the New Testament, there are several things mentioned where it indicates, if not dealt with, it allows Satan to get a foothold in a person's life and in the life of the church. Lack of forgiveness is one of those. Notice Paul doesn't say we just sweep sin under the rug, not at all. That's why he was so strong and direct in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5. But where there has been repentance, then there must be forgiveness. Remember, forgiveness is simply releasing a debt that's been incurred. It's to live as if there had been no offense at all. So just as there was a responsibility of the church to discipline, now there's a responsibility of the church to forgive. So here's Paul. he's, He's not in Corinth. He's concerned because he had sent Titus to find out what was happening in Corinth and the basis of his last letter. And and so he's worried about this. Um, How had they responded to his earlier letter? Had those opposed to him changed their mind? Had they repented and turned from that? Um, Let's go on. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, Even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Just a sidebar here. You notice what Paul says about the situation in Troas? It was an open door for ministry. Paul uses that phrase to describe other times where where it's just a great opportunity for, for ministering. But Paul didn't walk through that door. Was was he out of God's will? I don't think so. Open doors don't necessarily mean a call. See, it's what does God want you to do? And it seems Paul is so troubled in spirit over this church in Corinth that even though he could have stayed in Troas and done all this marvelous ministry, he knew that he needed to find out what was going on. And so he begins to head to Macedonia. Let's pick up verse 14. This is the heart of what I want you to get this morning. You forget everything I've said up to this point, okay? Introduction. This is what I want you to walk away from this morning. Because Paul's going to explain how it is that we are victors in Christ. Verse 14. Paul says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ from describing a spirit of unrest, of not hearing from Titus or what's going on in Corinth, Paul turns his attention to a glorious picture. This is the scene that would have been so familiar to the inhabitants of this city, which was a Roman colony. In fact, it had actually been rebuilt by Rome, having been destroyed and laid fallow for a long time, and was now the provincial capital of Greece. The New Testament 
scholar William Barclay is going to help us to see this because what Paul is referring to is something that was known as the Roman triumph. And so Barclay describes what it is that Paul's referring to and what's the comparison here that he's trying to make. So let me read just a little bit from William Barclay. In Paul's mind, there is a picture of a Roman triumph and of Christ as a universal conqueror. The highest honor which could be given to a victorious Roman general was a triumph. Before he could win it, he must satisfy certain conditions. He must have been the actual commander-in-chief in the field. The campaign must have been com completely finished, the region pacified, and the victorious troops brought home. 5,000 of the enemy at least must have fallen in one engagement. A positive extension of territory must have been gained and not merely a disaster retrieved or an attack repelled. And the victory must have been won over a foreign foe and not in a civil war. In an actual triumph, the procession of the victorious general marched through the streets of Rome to the capital in the following order. First, there came the state officials and the Senate. Then there came the trumpeters. Then there were carried the spoils taken from the conquered land. For instance, when Titus conquered Jerusalem, remember 70 AD, it says that, the, the, that he, he carried the seven-branch uh, candlestick, the golden table of the showbread, and the golden trumpets all through the streets of Rome. Then there came pictures of the conquered land and models of conquered citadels and ships. There followed the white bull for the sacrifice which be made. Then there walked the wretched captives, the enemy princes, leaders, and generals in chains, shortly to be flung into prison and in all probability almost immediately to be executed. Then there came the lictors bearing their rods, followed by the musicians with their lyres. Then came the priests swinging their censers with the sweet-smelling incense burning in them. And then there came the general himself. He stood in a chariot drawn by four horses. He was clad in a purple tunic embroidered with golden palm leaves and over it a purple toga marked out with golden stars. In his hand he held an ivory scepter with the Roman eagle on top of it. And over his head a slave held the crown of juniper, Jupiter. And after him there rode his family and finally there came the army wearing all their decorations and shouting their cry of triumph. As the procession moved through the streets, all decorated in garland, amid the shouting, cheering crowds, it was a tremendous day, a day which might happen only once in a lifetime. That's what Paul has in mind. That's what he wants the readers of this letter to think about. So let's walk back through the text. Let, let's just break it down here for a minute. Notice, first of all, that this is a procession that God leads in Christ. It is Jesus who is processing triumphantly. Now, how is it that he can be portrayed as a conquering general? In his letter to the Colossians, Paul also alludes to the idea of the Roman triumph with an explanation as to the nature of Jesus' ministry. Look at this. He writes, Colossians 2, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It was on the cross and through the cross that God triumphed by virtue of the sacrifice of his eternal son. Without the cross, there is no triumph. Without the cross, there is no victory. Without the cross, there is no forgiveness. Paul explains something else from the grand parade back in 2 Corinthians 2. Roman priests, pagan priests, marched along swinging censers of incense so that all the, the smoke, the smell of the incense filled the whole parade and it affected different people in different ways. To the triumphal soldiers, it meant life and victory. To the captive prisoners, that smell represented death and defeat. Two different things. So let, let's consider what Paul wants us, I think, to draw out of his allusion to the Roman triumph and how it relates to us today. This is an interesting thing. In the, in the parade, the victorious general's sons walked behind the father's chariot. Why? To share in the victory. And Paul says that Christ leads us in triumphal procession. Using this image, what Paul is declaring is that we as God's children through faith share in his victory. Now, I want you to underscore something. If you don't get anything out of this at all this morning, this is what I want you to get out of it. As Christians, as children of God, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. It seems so subtle, doesn't it? But there's a huge difference in these two things. We do not fight for victory. We do not struggle against flesh and blood, against the forces of, of spiritual darkness. We don't make that struggle to gain victory. We do it because victory has already been attained. And so as we battle the spiritual forces, we need to remember that ultimate victory has already been gained. We're not trying to get that. It's already been declared. Shortly before his death, Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now would the ruler of this world be cast out. We're in football season. Let me, let me, let me paint you another picture instead. You're playing on the offensive line. You're facing big folks against you. You're beating your head. You're in the trenches. The coach calls a timeout and has you come sit on the bench, and then he points up at the scoreboard. And you look up there and you see the final score has already been posted. It's guaranteed the final score is already there. And your team wins. Now, you don't stay on the bench. The coach sends you back in the trenches. You're beating your head up against those defensive linemen. But don't you play a little different? Isn't there a perspective adjustment and change that's happened if you know that that score is guaranteed and you win? That's the way we need to view the way we're living our Christian life. Remember, grace and obedience are never at conflict with each other. We have to watch we don't jump on a pedestal, you know, on the pendulum and swing one side to the other. So that over here, it's I don't have to do anything, to over here, I have to do everything. It's, it's this mystery of, of God working in you while you work out your salvation. And that's the struggle that we talk about. That, that's... 
That's the, the battle that we're in. But we do need to remember that the final score has been posted, that we're winners. Look at some passages of Scripture that come to play here with the implications of that. John uh, 16 says, Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul writes in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. John the Apostle writes in his first epistle, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the battle you fight must be seen in the context of the victory that Christ has already attained. Where did he do that? At the cross. At the cross. Does it make sense? Here's the second thing Paul wants you to know. It has to do with being connected to this triumphal procession. Just as the priest's incense was a fragrance of life and death to those in the parade, so is the life of the believer to those around him. The fragrance, Paul says, is the knowledge of Christ. First, Paul says it's a fragrance of Christ to God. What does that mean? Well, I think at least in part, it reminds God of Jesus' victory over sin. And because of his death, it's our justification. It reminds God that because of our identification with Christ, God sees us and he declares us to be in the right, righteous. Second, um, Paul says that it's a fragrance of life and death to those around us. And it cuts both ways. To fellow believers, it's a fragrance of life. It's a reinforcement of the life that we share in Christ and, and a sweet aroma of spiritual life to those that are being saved, to those that are alive spiritually. On the other hand, it's aroma of death to those who do not believe, to those who have not accepted what Christ has offered. And what a reminder from Scripture that every person is either in the process of living spiritually or dying spiritually. There's no in-between. You're in one or the other. So can I ask you appropriately this morning, how do you smell? How do you smell? Is your life a fragrance of the grace of God to those around you so that when you're with believers, it reinforces the grace of God? And in one sense, it's even a rebuke to those that don't know Christ. It's showing something else as we stand for life and for the things of Christ. Oh, listen, we're not talking perfection here, folks. We still wrestle with the flesh, with that old nature, with a nature that's predisposed to sin, to selfishness, to independence. It's a battle you'll fight to the day you die, right? It's a battle. But we need to understand that Jesus Christ has brought victory to us in the ultimate sense. Paul writes to the Galatians and he talks about the battle of the spirit and the flesh within us fighting constantly. But then he says this, I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so we fight the fight of faith in the battleground of the flesh and spirit. But we do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. This isn't just an admonition to try harder. I'll guarantee you, try it, it didn't work. We do it in the realm of the spirit and the spirit's empowering in our lives. That's why 
And that's why before Paul ever tells us to put on the armor of God for spiritual battle, he says this, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We acknowledge we don't have the resources that are needed in ourselves to be victorious. We're marching in Jesus' parade. We're walking behind the commander-in-chief who has already gained the victory. I think it's interesting that Paul ends this section by having to distinguish and separate himself from the false teachers again who are leading the Corinthians astray. He calls them peddlers of God's word. That word refers to the practice of those who adulterated their products, watering down their wine, putting other things in to affect the scales. Uh, These are people who are selling cheap goods for gain. But Paul identifies himself in his ministry as being commissioned by God himself. It's unfortunate that we have to see Paul constantly in this letter defending his apostleship. But that's the power of false teachers that have come in. People stood against him, claimed he couldn't be a real apostle, but with a clear conscience he presents himself as God's emissary, God's apostle, and he exercises his apostolic authority within that church. Well, this week you will be faced with making decisions. Making choices. Will you walk in the flesh? Will you walk in the spirit? Will you walk depending on your own resources or on the resources that God provides? Will you walk seeking somewhere to find victory rather than realizing Christ has won the victory and you need to walk in that victory? Will you choose right or wrong, true or false? Will you choose to please yourself or will you please God? It all comes to play, doesn't it? starting tomorrow morning again. So will you struggle to find victory or will you live in victory because of Christ's victory? Boy, challenging questions that come to us every day as we seek to live in a way that honors Christ and reflects him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the victory that has been secured because of what Jesus did for us. Could there be any greater demonstration of your love for us and that you sent your son to be the sin bearer for us? Lord, I pray that this truth of working from victory would somehow capture our hearts and our minds today that that it might just roll around in our heads this week. That as we face tough choices, as we deal with the issues of life, as we realize the internal battle between flesh and spirit, Lord, might we be mindful that you have won the victory and you have given us your spirit to empower us to make right choices, right decisions, to choose to live in obedience to you and to your word, live in such a way that honors Christ and accurately reflects him and represents him. Lord, we are not adequate for these things, but your spirit is who indwells every believer Would you encourage us with those truths today? In Christ's name I pray, amen.